Welcome to the HU Movemakers Podcast, where we highlight folks that are blazing the trail and making moves in Howard culture. Hello and welcome to the HU Movemaker Podcast, where we highlight folks in Howard culture that are making moves and setting trends in the world. Today, we have a very special guest, Vista Equity Partners, $74 billion with a B. The largest tech, software, private equity firm in the world. A lot of syllables in there. And guess what? They're black owned. Um, <laughs> uh, Capital and Partner Solutions Engagement. JP Morgan Asset Management. This brother went to Duke, but he got that foundation on the yard at Howard. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Julian Bostic, and he's joining us from the sunny side of the West Coast. So, Mr. Bostic, thank you and welcome to the show. How you doing, Josh? Good to see you. Good to be with you. Yes, yes, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, how does it feel to, um, man, every day you go to work, you're a part of history. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Black-owned businessman. I'm happy with my four employees. <laughs> <laughs> You guys hey, got 70,000. Whether it's four or four, 40,000, man, it's all good. Yeah. So tell me about your career path. I know you, you know, you um, did work at JP Morgan, uh, Newburger, Berman. Am I pronouncing that right? Yep, that's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so tell me about your career path. I mean, we don't see too many people like us at, at, at a high level, you know, in, in this position. I mean, I watched the show Billions and you know that's about as far as i get um so tell me tell me how how, how did you get to uh t- to be the man oh man i, I appreciate that brother I'm, I'm far from the man but i'm happy to <laughs> at least share uh, my path and my journey if, if you think that's you know useful for your audience uh let's see gosh let me go back born and raised in miami florida oh wow uh, nice. the school as you know at howard some of the best years of my life hanging out in the yard. I played football there, um, was a marketing major in the School of Business, um, developed some of the most amazing and lifelong relationships and friendships, learned a lot. Then I went to work at a firm called GE Capital, where I began my career uh, on the corporate side and did that for a number of years and wanted to go back and get my MBA. So as you noted, I went to, I went to Duke for business school um, I was there for about two years and had a great experience there. Again, met lots of great people, um, really enjoyed that experience. And then, uh, like many you know, of my classmates, and I finished in 2002, by the way, I finished Howard in 95 and graduated from Duke in 2002. Nice. And, um, you know, like many of my classmates at the time at Duke, uh, the thing to do was to go to Wall Street, was to, you know, to, to, to um, basically begin your career after business school into uh, into finance. And so um, graduated from Duke, went to New York and worked at JP Morgan, first in the private bank um, for a number of years, about three to four years, and then transitioned my career into asset management. So the, the private bank, that's where you started? Uh, you know, I worked, I worked for Chase Bank. That was one of my first jobs, but obviously we were on two different... <laughs> <laughs> two different tiers. I was in the retail center. 
trying to get people to get checking accounts. And uh, <laughs> and that's the bulk of the money in the bank. So, you know, Man, you, you that was the, that was the hardest pay. job I've ever had. Doing I can that. imagine. But can imagine. I was but my girlfriend at the time was worked in a private client and it was her check was a lot bigger than mine. But anyway, uh, <laughs> go ahead. No, no, this is much more interesting. You told me about, you know, your, your experience. Um, so real quick, I, I worked uh, in the private wealth management business at JP Morgan, uh, began as a you know vice president and continued to wow. kind of work my way through the system. I wound up uh, transitioning to something called the asset management business, which is we were managing um, money on behalf of very large institutional investors. So think, you know, Texas teachers pension plan or think AT&T's pension plan or Microsoft. Those are some of our clients. Um, I did that for a number of years. I was responsible for capital raising and business development and got recruited by a firm called Newberger Berman. And Newberger um, was actually the old Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, just a different version of of Lehman Brothers, very different version. Was it, what did you have, were you kind of hesitant to to make that move? That's a good question. I I wasn't because, gosh, that was 2000 and about 14 when I joined Newberger and the financial crisis had happened right around 2008. So I figured that, you know, it was a solid six years, had been enough time and the firm wasn't known as Lehman Brothers. I think if it still had that name, that moniker attachment, I wouldn't have been uh, as confident working working for the firm, possibly because of the you know reputational or headline risk. But it was a very different firm at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moved to Chicago to run uh, Newberger's kind of Midwest institutional uh, business development effort. And then from there was recruited by uh, Vista to come over and focus on uh, helping Robert to raise uh, additional assets from investors. And that's basically how I got to to Vista. So I've been at Vista now since about 2018. And it's been a a wonderful, wonderful experience so far. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Uh, Kudos to everything that you guys have done. Um, It's good to see you know, people like us not, you know, making money in business and not, you know, just in on the entertainment side of, of things. What, what do you, why do you think you were able to constantly elevate in your career? Because it seems like, you know, of course you went to Duke. So obviously you're very smart guy, went to Howard. So, you know, but after that, you know, it's always important to, you know, obviously have a great reputation, but you were getting recruited for your next um, roles. From what I'm hearing you say, it wasn't like you were going out and just looking for these opportunities. What, what was it that um, allowed you to, 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 to keep elevating your career? Yeah, that's another great question. I think, um, you know, maybe, maybe a couple of things. I mean, like anything else, Josh, I think, you know, we are, um, we all have a very high need for achievement, right? Mm-hmm. You can't go to Howard without, without having that spirit in you about you, right? And so I think um, a lot of it was really just about hard work and um, and trying to make you know strategic and thoughtful decisions and and really putting forth a lot of energy and effort into my career and building my career. Um, 
And then, you know, I was able to have some success along the way, um, <clears throat> raising dollars or sales, if you will, in that context is uh, it's definitely a contact sport. Yeah, uh, it isn't for everybody. Um, a lot of sharp elbows, you know, you get told <laughs> no 90% of the time you're trying to do a deal. And so I think as you, um, once you begin to have some success, you think about, you know, what's working, what's not working, and you really kind of harness in on that. And that helped me quite a bit. And then honestly, I, I'd say the other, um, probably the, the greatest contributor of that success was prayed a lot. And I had really good parents who prayed a lot and um, really were, you know, very supportive in helping me to effectively harness all my talent and bring it all to bear, as we all do um, mm -hmm. in various capacities. And I think that was, um, that was certainly a, a major factor to, to, to whatever success I've had so far. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. So now you're at, at Vista Equity Partners and that's, um, if I'm getting this title correctly, Capital and Partners Solutions Engagement. So yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what what exactly does that mean for the layman? Yeah, so at Vista, it's important to kind of understand what the firm does. And you sort of alluded to what we do um, during your, your opening or your introduction of me. Um, effectively, as, as you talked about, Vista Equity Partners is one of the largest and most successful private equity firms in the world. Wow. Um, we are focused on uh, enterprise software and technology enabled businesses. Um, Robert Smith um, founded the firm back in 2000. We, he started off with about a billion dollars and we are now today about $74 billion in assets under management, which I think would be um, large by any standard, but, it, but particularly in the, in the private equity space. I think what's interesting about Vista is currently we own, as I mentioned to you before, we own about 65 software companies um, across the world. And it's interesting, Josh, because if you were to sort of add up all of those companies into one, Vista as a holding company winds up being the fourth or fifth largest enterprise software company in the world. We have over 70,000 employees. We have over 12 million users of, um, of the, uh, the software that we, that we create. Um, and so just a massive, massive scale and ecosystem, um, I think in that context. And so part of what we do, a big part of what we do is we will go to a pension plan like Texas Teachers or like Howard University, who's a client of mine. Nice. And we will say, listen, we, I know that you want to have money to put to work in the market. You want to generate a very attractive rate of return. Um, we are returning 30% uh, IRRs or return back to investors. We've been doing that for the past 20 years or also three times our money. You give us a dollar, we give you three and a half dollars back uh, over and over and over again. And so I go out and I raise money from those groups and they then trust Vista to then put, the, put those dollars to work um, into investments. And then the other part of what Vista does is we have a very strong operating model where we effectively take those software companies uh, once we meet them and really engage in something that I describe to be as an engineered um, value creation strategy, 
And that's how we're generating the returns that we have for investors. Um, and so my part, again, in all this is I'm, I'm going out and talking to the, the large investors of the world and saying, we'd like for you to give us money to then invest on your behalf into the software companies that we're buying. Does that make sense? Okay. So if I get, so if I'm getting this right, you're going out, you're going to these large institutions that have pension plans or just. Yeah. Billions of dollars in their pension plans. Cause okay. you can't put all that money into a checking account, okay. right? It's got to earn interest. So Firms like Vista, you probably have heard of, obviously, you know, firms like BlackRock or Carlyle mm-hmm. or, or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. We are all effectively money managers of this very, very large amount of capital. So those and, would be your competitors? No, not, not exactly. Um, we do have competitors in the space that we operate in. I'm just giving you an example of these are, you know, like us, we're in the asset management business or industry and it's our responsibility to be very good stewards of that money mm-hmm. and invest it wisely into, you know, um, hopefully high returning uh, investment strategies and then return that capital back to, to investors. So, so I you, go out and I, I, I basically pitch mm-hmm. um, our investment capabilities to institutional investors all day long. Okay. So you'll raise the money and then somebody else that's at your firm will invest that money. Once you that's correct. Yep. Okay. That's exactly right. And you and you and you guys have been able to to basically return about 20% year after year, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and actually north of that, about 30, 30%. Wow. Since 30%. And that's since 2000, and that's uh, that's an annualized return. So wow. we are very good at what we do. <laughs> and so a lot of times these these large institutions, they don't even want a 30% return, right? They want something. A little bit less is that, I mean, everybody wants a 30% return, but sometimes, you know, 5%, you know, of a billion dollars is still a ton of money. But when you get 30% back, that's, you know. Yeah, well, I would say that investors, um, by and large, certainly desire to have high returning investments. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, the way that it works is not every single asset class is going to return 30%. Some asset classes or some investments that investors will make may return 2%. Some may return 5%. Some may return zero or negative or the return could be negative. And so I think the reason that investors invest in private equity, which is what we do, is because they are hoping to achieve a a premium um, above what they could normally get if they invested in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So for, for instance, um, if you think about an investor's portfolio construction, they know that not all investments are going to produce 30% returns at any one um, time. And so they say, well, let's assume that I want my portfolio to net a 10% return every single year. Some of those investments have to be high returning strategies and 30% land. Some investments are going to be kind of in the 2% range, 1% range, depending upon the asset class, and hopefully blend it together, I will achieve something above my 10% target. That's generally how people think about it. Very nice. So what, what's the difference between private equity and venture capital? Yeah, that's a great question because it's often, um, I think those words are used, the lexicon is used kind of interchangeably. Um, we are what, so it's all private equity and all private equity means 
is dollars that are being invested into private companies, not public companies, right? So we're not, I mean, we effectively, we, we may own a company before it goes public, but once we invest in a company at that moment, it is, it is private. Um, typically, sometimes we'll take a company that's public to private, but either way, it's, it's really a private equity investment. Within private equity, you kind of have a different, a couple of different categories. One is venture capital, and venture capital is what we call kind of early stage investing. Um, and this is when you think about the startups of the world, and you think about people investing in a um, a new idea or a yet to be proven um, technology, or possibly a healthcare solution or product. You tend to attract investors who are willing to invest money in that idea at the early stage. And that's really called venture capital, hence the name. Mm -hmm. It's a brand new venture, oh, right? Okay. We're beginning this process. We're not sure how it's going to turn out. We hope it turns out very, very well, um, but we're not hundred percent sure. And so it's called a venture. It's really describing the, uh, the stage upon which you invest. We do something called buyout private equity which means that we're investing in um, mature software companies. Um, the average age of our, some of our portfolio companies typically is 10 to 15 years. They've been you know, in business in 10, 15 years, and we have actually come along at some point and, and said, we'd like to make a investment in this company and buy the company for control and then take the company over and do our work. Wow, And it's, it's very similar. I mean, I, I even um, use this analogy with our investors sometimes, but think about it as if you were buying a home and you were asking yourself, okay, well, you know, can I make three times my money in this home, right? If dot, 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 and that part is called value creation. So you may buy a new construction home and there are different nuances with a new construction home in a nice neighborhood. Um, or you can also buy an older home and fix it up. We buy older homes and fix them up. And then we sell them for a profit. Again, I'm just giving you an example around because it really conceptually is almost the exact same thing. Again, conceptually. I'm, I'm being um, I'm, I'm definitely simplifying the, the example, but I think at its core, we're finding assets that are mature, that we like. We are creating value in these companies, i.e. we're finishing the basement, right? We are de-risking the property by changing the roof out. We may decide to redo the kitchen. We may decide to extend the square footage on the back of the house. We may do a number of things to create value. And then once we've done our work in that home, we then sell the home. That's very different than buying a new construction home where we're hoping that this neighborhood will just increase in value without us doing anything to it. We don't do that. We do the, we do what I just described before. Hmm. So when you get these businesses, are you, you kind of like changing like their management as well and kind of, and basically turning them around, but they, they may already be profitable, but you kind of look at their book and you say, well, if we tweak a few things, <clears throat> we can take you to three, three X to 10 X over the course of time. That's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. Some of the businesses, um, <clears throat> you know, may not, I think, you know, what, what Vista has done a really good job of is knowing how to operate, <clears throat> excuse me, software companies and understanding 
really how to create value. We have a series of best practices that we've been cultivating and creating um, since the firm's inception. And we've gotten really, really good at knowing how to market software companies or knowing how to um, work on um, product and technology roadmaps or doing a really good job of making sure that the code is, is as efficacious as it should be wow. and building a competitive scenario kind of around that. And so the point is those companies may not be broken. They just may not be as profitable as they could be. And so, again, we're not buying a house that has burned down. We're buying a nice house in a neighborhood good that can benefit from <laughs> some lipstick and rouge and some other things. And so that's what we're doing. Welcome to the Go Fish Village podcast. As a Chinese proverb says, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. At Go Fish, our goal is to teach individuals just like you how to build wealth through real estate. How have you been able to succeed as a, as a black man in this space? Yeah, there's, um, that's an excellent question. And there's a lot uh, to kind of unpack in that. L let me just say, I guess, a couple of things. Um, because you're right, you know, we, private equity, um, Wall Street in general, but certainly in the financial services, but certainly in, in private equity, has been a, a very a very sort of narrow um, universe for African American professionals to engage in. It's just unfortunately has not been. We don't have the numbers in mass. There there are a good number of us, but just not nearly as many as there should or could be. Which is part of what we, in addition to um, what I do, we we also work to just to, to, to try to create an opportunity or a path for people to understand about private equity, because it is a very, very fulfilling um, career path for sure. And oftentimes when I go into these client meetings, um, unless it's, you know, for a public pension plan and let's say Houston or Detroit, I am usually the only African-American in the room ever. Um, and so the people both who I'm pitching to, whether it's a chief investment officer at a large pension plan or um, somebody who is responsible for a family office, that family office could be seven, eight billion dollars in terms of its size. Um, even if I'm in a competitive situation and I'm competing against other firms, the other team that's sitting on the outside of the door as we exchange, you know, greetings, if you will, is usually not African-American. So I will submit that and agree with, with your point around that for sure. Um, I, I think in terms of, you know, thinking about that dynamic um, and, and it is competitive for sure. I think a lot of it has to do with preparation, but then a lot of it has to do with like where you're from. And you know this, right? Growing up in the South side of Chicago, right? I'm from Miami in a very similar, from a very similar neighborhood, but in Miami, Florida is the South side of Chicago. We both went to Howard, right? And so I think, interestingly, um, African-Americans, our core values, our sense of hustle and grind, our sense of an inner strength or confidence or even swagger in some cases, 
is actually a very strong positive. I think the other aspect that we don't talk as much about is, at least I, I certainly feel this way, but if you look around and you don't see many folks who look like you, that develops a little bit of an edge, if I'm being honest. Yeah. That develops, I don't want to call it a chip on your shoulder, but it's kind of a chip on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. You can kind of snack on yeah. all throughout the meeting <laughs> mentally. Do you I understand like what I'm saying? I like that. And I think a lot of that is actually very, very empowering. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, you know, if I think about my my parents, for instance, and my grandparents, um, all of which are, are deceased at this point, my and I nose. think about the sacrifices that they have made to get me to where I am today, you know, the things that my parents did, the the trouble they kept me out of, the investment in time and energy that they made in me and my sister and my career and giving us as many options as possible when it didn't probably seem like there would be many at the time, you know, things that I don't know, I didn't know about then, but I know I know about now as a as an adult and as a father myself, you know, I think about those things. And, um, you know, I like you, I, I stand on the shoulders of giants in my family. And so when I'm in meetings with people and I'm competing for a piece of business, whether it's going against another firm or being on point to do my thing, I kind of look at people and I say, yeah, you, hmm. of course I'm going to win. Yeah. Is there a sense of pride? Um working for or working with one of the wealthiest uh, black men ever or black people ever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it is ever as I think about it now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it has been a phenomenal experience working, working for Robert. Um, you know, Robert Smith, if you don't know a lot about his story, you know, was, was born in, in Colorado and raised by, um, two educators um, came from a middle-class family, um, you know, very similar to, to how you and I were, were raised, or at least to, to some degree. Um, you know, parents, again, were, were educators. They didn't really come from a, a significant amount of money. They didn't work in the industry, but they recognized a very strong talent and gift in Robert's intellect. And, um, and Robert really harnessed that and did very well early on. I mean, he worked at, he went to um, Columbia Business School. Uh, he went to Cornell before that, engineering mind, then went on to Goldman Sachs, and then really kind of built his business from scratch that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is extraordinary working for someone like that. I think along two fronts. One, it's just incredible to engage, to your point, to engage with someone who has been, who has had that much success in life. And Robert has had a ton of success in life. So to have these conversations and to get into the gears of how Robert thinks and how he processes information, decision-making, door number one versus door number two, his assessment of people and talent and processes. It's just, for me, it's really, really interesting to have a lens into someone who is like Robert, 
like an Oprah Winfrey, for instance, or, or other very um, successful people. That's been fascinating at least from my perspective, for sure. Yeah, that's that's got to be amazing. I mean, every time you go into, you go to work, I mean, you're pretty much being a part of, you're part of history. Um, I mean, once <laughs> he made that donation to Morehouse, I feel like he became a household name. I mean, everybody, if you follow finance, of course, you knew who he was. But yeah. once, you know, anytime somebody says, we're going to eliminate everybody's debt here, it was like, man, I should have went to Morehouse, man. I mean, that was... <laughs> No, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> so what um what what have you learned about wealth creation in in your journey um to you know to, to Vista? You know, I, I think um kind of two things, and this didn't hit me right away. So I'm not, I I never want to um pretend like I suddenly have all the answers because I do not. I'm learning every single day. But the thing that I, and we never really talked about wealth or money or wealth generation or money in my household. We just, you know, we didn't grow up that way. I think most, most African-American families um, do not. Um, conversely, conversely, many other families do. And you sort of, you, you kind of get that as you get older, you're like, oh, okay. So this person, like when I was in business school, I was like, oh, you have what kind of investment? And you're, you're doing what? And like, how did you find out about those things? Like, yeah. where did you get exposure to those uh, types of things. Um, and so I think, you know, what I have learned is kind of a couple of things. I mean, besides how to think about money and investing and how to be thoughtful and, and, and judicious with your decisions around saving money and putting money towards, you know, investments and in certain causes. I think one of the biggest lessons is to try to, 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 tra to train your brain to expect it which is hard to do. It's hard to expect that you're going to at some point be wealthy or at least have wealth to then do something with it and then share with others. It's hard to have that expectation, but many of our counterparts do have an expectation. So they're already starting on second and third base in some cases where we're beginning um, sitting in the bleachers, if you will, just because of a mindset, you mm -hmm. know? And I think that's really important. I think the other thing that's also really important is to educate to point number one, educate yourself about uh, money and finance. That's something that's never really going to go away, right? You're always going to have um, financial considerations to think about, whether it's having good credit, whether it's making sure you buy your first home the right way, whether it's saving for your retirement, whether it's investing in a business and multiplying your wealth, financial considerations will always be with you. So you may as you may as well try to maximize them as much as possible. Yeah, I mean that's that's I've I've always wondered because before I was an insurance agent, I was uh I taught entrepreneurship in high school for high school kids. Yeah. And I always wondered why like financial literacy wasn't taught at uh in elementary school. Not saying that kids have to be investing in the stock market, but just basic things like budgeting, you know, um you know, the rule of 72 compound interest, just wondering why that was yeah. never, you know, uh, stressed at, at that age. Um, I, I have a question um, yeah. <clears throat> with uh, COVID. Um, sure. How did that, because I'm, I'm thinking that in your business, relationships are like, it's a relationship business, even sure. though 30% a year is great, you know, but relationships do have to come into play to, you know, to maintain, oh, 
yeah. you know, to, to, to maintain uh, everything. How did, how did COVID affect what you do? Are you having meetings face-to-face? -face? Are you on Zooms? Because it seems we're talking about billions to somebody on a, <laughs> on a Zoom call. You know, I kind of want to look at you, you know, uh, and all of that. How has it affected uh, your, your business? And then also, how has it affected your, you, you all's portfolio? Yeah, I would say um, I'll take the first question first, I guess, in terms of its um, impact. So ordinarily, like I, I run our, um, I guess, what's described as the, the Midwest business development effort for, for Vista, which means that I typically, um, before COVID, was traveling just about four or five days a week. Wow, four or um, five days a week. Yeah. Yeah. I would That's leave tough. on a, that is tough. I would leave on a Monday morning early, you know, four o'clock car for a five thirty flight um, to O'Hare or at O'Hare. And I wouldn't come back until Thursday night at nine or 10. I kind of spend a day or so at home. And then by Sunday, I'm, you know, packing the bag, thinking about my next trip. And I would do that pretty much four or five days a week, or I leave on a Sunday. So there was a lot of uh, travel involved and I'd be going to different states, you know, Texas, Minnesota, Nebraska, Kansas, all those, you know, what wonderful mid Midwestern states, Michigan. Um, and so it was very much a um, in-person, you know, person, person to person engagement where I'd be in a room with a bunch of people and presenting, you know, the different investments or whatever. Um, and so you're right. It is very much a relationship business. And then when COVID hit, all that obviously stopped. <clears throat> there was no more traveling. You know, it was about phone calls and Zooms. And I think initially um, it was kind of odd <laughs> conducting business through this medium, this exchange. And then all of a sudden, I think as we got deeper into COVID, I think folks recognize, hey, look, you know, the world is not going to stop. You need to continue to get stuff done both in terms of what we do, but then also my clients. And so there was this kind of mutual recognition that maybe we can, you know, allow for transactions to happen in this context. And maybe we can continue to stay very engaged with each other and, and as personal as possible without being actually in person. Hmm. And then it really, so that was kind of, so phase one was like, it's kind of weird. Phase two is we don't really have another choice. Phase three, which is kind of what we've been in for at least the last seven or eight months, has been extraordinarily productive. So where I would used to have to fly to three different cities per week on Zoom, I could theoretically hit five or six cities in a day. Yeah. And I'd be behind these, you know, again, doing these, uh, these Zoom calls and uh, engaging with investors and it's been working. We've been able to raise uh, a lot of money during this period of time. Um, some of which I have, you know, in full disclosure, there are some new investors who have joined the firm or, or given us money recently who I've not yet actually met in person. I've only met them or seen them through, through, uh, through Zoom. So um, anyway, so I don't think we'll be like this forever, but I, I certainly think that we'll, um, well, I think that the model will certainly change, I think, going forward. From a business perspective, I mean, it's been one of the most um, 
and again, you never want to, you don't want, um, you know, COVID to be part of the reason. But the reality is, if you are a technology business, I was, I was just going to say that. I mean, this is because I was looking at your portfolio. I'm like, wow, wow, wow. wow. I'm like, tech is leading the, the market right now. I mean, since March, if, if you yeah, it's and, and you think about the and we, you know, we're in the enterprise software space. And so our companies are ones you don't typically hear about because we're not consumer focused, but they are the kind of companies that somebody within a specific industry would go in and use every single day to do their job. Or like, for instance, we own a company called um, Central Square. Well, Central Square is the number one software behind the 911 operating system. Wow. Or we own a company called uh, Granicus and Granicus is the number one uh, gov tech platform. So all these municipalities, whether it's Cook County, whether it's, you know, um, Dade uh, County, municipalities in Los Angeles, Dade County, where I am, any municipality that's engaging with their citizens about paying tickets online, what are the COVID numbers in my zip code, whatever, all run through Granicus. So think about that in, a, in this in this process. So we and we have 65 of those companies like that that have been that have proven to be extremely resilient because yeah. they are so mission critical to their end user, like the end user function. There's a company called we all call PowerSchool, and PowerSchool is the number one uh, educational platform for K through 12 schools across the country. Um, it owns a we own we own uh, part of PowerSchool is something called Schoology. Well, my daughter who's doing all her schoolwork online, uses Schoology every day to do her classwork and her assignments and her grades and her test scores are basically all kept within our software. So that's what I mean by mission critical enterprise software solutions. So in that context, um, this past year has been one of the best years on record for for our firm. So do you know all the companies that you guys are invested in? Do you have to know a little bit of like everything about all these companies? Yep. <laughs> wow. I do. I do. I mean, again, it's, you that's have pretty to, cool. how sorry. do you, I said, that's pretty cool because it's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like we were having a conversation a few weeks ago. I was like, man, how come folks aren't having these conversations? So it's like, I'm sure you know who the LeBron James is in the portfolio, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who the Kyrie Irving is as well as, you know, who the Dickie Simpkins is and who the Udonis Haslam is in the, in the portfolio. Oh man, that's great. That's a great example. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, we would like to think they're all a bunch <laughs> but I get you. I get yeah. your point. <laughs> no, that's, so how do you, how do you find these companies and like, do, do they come to you like, please help us or, or is it like, Hey, you know, hostile takeover, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, what you you want you want us to compete with you or you want to get bought out? Like what, what's up? Like how do you how do you find these companies? Yeah, it's uh it's simply through a, a variety of ways. I think um there's both kind of a, a direct outreach effort that we've been doing. Remember, we've been in the business um for you know gosh, going on 21 years at this point, right? Um actually over 21 years, given when it was founded. Um and so we have built an amazing reputation over that period of time. Mm-hmm. And we've effectively only kind of done basically one thing. We haven't been 
you know, this month we're going to go and do janitorial services companies. Next month we're going to do energy. It's all been enterprise software. Man. The software companies That's that brilliant. have been around for a while very much know who we are. And then newer companies that we haven't really engaged with before um, have also heard about us, our reputation. And so that kind of creates a really interesting dynamic where we are certainly actively going out and meet. There's someone like me, for instance, who reaches out to software companies and, and tries to develop a relationship. Let me walk you through how we think about value creation of Vista. Let me walk you through kind of what we're seeing there's someone that does that, but for software companies, and that's kind of a, a very strong uh, and important sourcing component. And then, yeah, I mean, again, being kind of who we are in this ecosystem, our size, our returns, the fact that we've generated so much money on behalf of, um, you know, founders of software companies, and they've, you know, have, they have done better by having Vista buy the company again, the house, buy the house, improve the house and sell the house yeah. than they would have on their own. That just creates this interesting kind of flywheel effect. And, um, you know, we, we get a lot of uh, activity that way as well. So I, I'd say outreach and then also people do, you know, come to us and say, we'd like to consider working with this in some way. Man, do you ever pitch yourself? Like, man, I can't believe, <laughs> um, you know, I'm having a, like you're at the table of like, this is history. Like, do you, do you look back? Like, like the, the fact that Robert was able to come up with a software company at like the time when there's like an internet boom or whatever you want to call it. When everybody's trying to come up with the next.com, he's like, I'm trying to figure out a way to buy and take your.com thing to the next level and find investors because it used to, like real estate used to be a safe play for i guess private equity now is i mean tech is like i mean i don't want to say super safe but i mean the returns you guys are getting are crazy yeah, yeah it's no it's been um it's been an amazing journey and I, <laughs> I think what's been interesting is you know you think about kind of where you are you know in life josh and you kind of think about the <clears throat> the things that have um, occurred or happened to you that you participated participated in, et cetera, that have led to like that moment. And I remember joining, when I first joined Vista, um, I basically, I said to myself, I'm like, boy, am I glad this is now mm -hmm. versus like 10 years ago? Because mm -hmm. I wasn't quite ready. I wasn't ready, you know? Really? I mean, there, there, were, there were some experiences that I've had professionally even in the past several years prior to joining Vista that have really helped me out quite a bit. And so while I would have loved to have worked for a firm like Vista, you have to, I think it's important that people recognize that there's value in the journey that you're on. And it may not always be as self-evident until later, but you should, you should try to appreciate the process and you should try to think about that from like a learning context. And as I think about the different jobs that I've had, GE Capital being a Six Sigma, you know, black belt process improvement person wow. um, to working in the private bank. I even had a job where I was working in a warehouse before business school. I was managing a big team of people and it was a very distribution engineering oriented type of job. 
that has contributed to you know what I bring to the table now at Vista. Um, my internships at Howard, one was in sales, one was at a um, in advertising at a firm called Leo Burnett in Chicago. Um, yes. And interestingly enough, I I used to when I was doing an in, that internship. Um, I said to myself, wow, I'd love to come back to Chicago and, and live at some point when I, when I get older. Well, sure enough, I came back to Chicago and those experiences I have honestly have drawn upon. Like it's, it sort of, it gets embedded in your, in like your DNA a bit. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely appreciate all of those experiences to at least um, allow me to, to continue my, my journey here at Vista so far. It's been great. That's awesome. So Howard, um, tell me about your Howard experience. Uh, it was, you said you came in, it was the late eighties <laughs> or almost, <laughs> but no, you, you graduated business school in 2002. Yeah, that's okay. I finished right. in 19. Let's see. I finished in 95. So right, call it 95. early, early nineties when I, when I went into Howard, um, what was Howard like? Back then, coming Howard in. was Howard was. I mean, it still is. It's just obviously, you know, the the like the core values of, of Howard have obviously remained the same, right? It's just it's just a phenomenal institution and place for growth and development and friendships and fun. It was just like that when I was in school. In fact, I mean, I, I let's see, I came into uh, into school in 1990. I was on football scholarship, so a lot of what I was doing. Oh, you doing, played football? I did. Yeah. Oh, what what position? Defensive end and outside linebacker. Nice. Now you played all four years. I played three years and couldn't play my last year because of an injury. But my the last year I played was that eleven and zero team. <laughs> of course and, it was. You know, <laughs> so, you know, going going out with the bang, so to speak, was was uh, was cool. Um, nice. So a lot of my initial experience was, you know, being a student athlete. And, uh, but um, I had a phenomenal time. I had so much fun. I, I was just enjoying the experience, the people that I was engaging with and living in Drew Hall and, you know, the practices, the games and like the going up to Georgia Avenue and doing, you know, everything. Howard, Ch I don't know if they still have Howard China, but Howard China and like, Mm -hmm. All these other places, um, uh, these spots that we used to eat at, that we, we probably shouldn't have eaten at, but whatever, it is what it is. You know, you're college, you don't, you don't really have much money. Um, yeah. This, that experience was, was incredible. I mean, it was, I was enjoying it so much that like every year I would say to myself, my gosh, I can't believe I still have three more years of this. I still mm -hmm. can't believe I have two whole more years. I can't believe I have another year because I was almost talk about pinching myself and waking up. Um, Howard was, was that experience for me. And it's something I sit on the school of businesses, uh, board of directors now. Nice. And, um, or board, yeah, board of visitors. And, um, it's just, I mean, it's great being in that seat of course, and helping Howard and the school of business think about the next, you know, 10, 15 years, where do we continue to recruit great students? How do we provide them with a, exceptional continue to provide them with exceptional experience create opportunities in finance and banking and private equity um it's really kind of come full circle to me being on that board and so it's just been a it was just an incredible experience and i you know i'm going to try to get my kids to go to howard i got two kids Gigi and harrison Gigi <laughs> is 
nine. No, she's eight and some change. She acts like she's 18, but, and my boy uh, Harrison is, uh, is five. And um, we were going to go to homecoming last year, but of course COVID happened. Um, and we're, we're definitely gonna go you know, this year. But my uncle went to Howard. My sister went to Howard. My cousin went to Howard. So really? Howard runs. Yeah, Howard runs oh, deep nice. in my family. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, if you ask my uncle, um, <clears throat> I went to Howard many years before I did, but he stayed up in Drew Hall. Then he also went to, he, I think he lived in Cook at one point. He did Slow. I don't, I don't know if Slow Hall is still open or not. I mean, obviously the dorms have, have thankfully uh, been upgraded and changed. Um, but the essence of, of what Howard, you know, is now has always been that way um, for many, many years. And so my experience was incredible at Howard. What, um, what, uh, what were you involved in when you were at Howard? So I played, you know, like I said, football a lot. I did, um, I had, um, I was involved in the school of business for sure. Um, I couldn't do things like, you know, campus pals. Oh yeah. I was a pal. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great experience. We we had a lot of a lot of great times with the campus pals, at least um, when I was there. Um, didn't really get a chance to pledge, and the reason I didn't do some of those things, unfortunately, was because when you play, I mean, I, obviously, pledging football. He's yeah, pledging football. <laughs> academics were like you know very very important to me, and I knew. I mean, I never. Um, I didn't go to Howard to play football. In fact, I didn't start playing football until pretty late in my life. Like I didn't play until I think like my junior year in in high school. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a big guy and, I, you know, was pretty good at it. So I had a, a number of, of uh, scholarship offers, but I, it wasn't going to the pros was never a destination for me. And, or at least not that I, that I was thinking of. And so I knew at some point I would have to, um, get a career and, and, and work hard. And I wouldn't, I wasn't thinking about going to the pros. So anyways, backing into that, if I wasn't playing football, I was spending a lot of, a lot of time studying, keeping up with my grades, which I'm glad I did. But in between all that, I had a really good time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What, um, what do you like? Did, do you ever hear people say stuff like um because i know when i went i'm not gonna say when i went to howard but when i remember coming back from uh like my my christmas break at howard or whatever the first break was and i had friends that went to like big 10 schools and they're like oh why would you go to hbcu you know the world isn't black you know what <laughs> what what do you say to people who say stuff like that <laughs> well you know it's it's uh so first of all, I would say that, and I used to say this in business school, remember that chip on my shoulder I used to eat all the time, yeah. I used to snack on it. Um, but I remember saying, I used to have conversations. I mean, I would be you know, in the hallways and these other students would, you know, some of them had gone to Cornell, undergrad, you know, Michigan, I mean, you name it, right? Yale, had a couple of Stanfords in there, you know, some Dukes kind of mixed in there as well. And, um, you know, we, we'd be talking about our backgrounds and our experiences. And I'm like, you know, oh, I went to this, this school and I did this, whatever. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, went, I went to Howard, you know? Yeah. And yet here we all are. <laughs> here we are. 
<laughs> Here we are in the White House. At, Enough said, at, right? At, it's like yeah, at Vista. Exactly. <laughs> here, here we all are doing the exact same work. Yeah. And if I'm being honest, I think I got a better score that last test than you did. But I'm not going. I'm not going to raise that though. Just you know. right, right. But who's <laughs> but who's counting? Exactly. But my, I guess my point is, I mean, look, I, I think um, I think going to Howard is a complete win-win, right? I mean, I think number one, you get a phenomenal education for sure. And then your experience on top of that is also phenomenal. And it's unlike any other experience that somebody who went to say a majority school probably wouldn't experience. Yeah. So if anything, it's basically like, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's like you're, you're getting, you're getting a two for one. Right. And then of course, if you decide to go on to business school, if you decide to go to law school, if you decide to, open up your own business, you know, have your own insurance company, you are equally as prepared. So yeah. I would look at that and say, why didn't they go to Howard? Right. Because mm-hmm. if you knew what I knew about my experience, right. If yeah. you knew what I, if you knew <laughs> kind of where we are in life, um, I feel like Howard grads win big time. Because again, you can't duplicate the experience. And then it isn't like, I feel like I'm somehow lacking what I will say, and again, we're trying to, to work on changing some of this at the School of Business, but I will say that when I grad, when I went to Duke and I, and I started working in, um, at J.P. Morgan on Wall Street, I remembered that some of, the, some of the other students seemed a little bit further along in some of the financial lexicon or prep Mm -hmm. that I think I had. And that wasn't necessarily a design point around Howard as much. I think culturally, some of those kids, again, grew up with fathers and mothers who were in the industry and kind of picked up things as they got older, or maybe had an older brother or an uncle who was also in the industry. And so they sort of got some of that that way. And I think, um, you know, from a banking and, and private equity standpoint, um, there are a number of us, um, Dr. Wilbon, especially at the School of Business, who are trying to kind of close that gap a bit in terms of just overall preparation. That's it. Not saying that we don't have students who can't compete, not saying that we don't have students who aren't at the top of their fields and who will continue to be so. It's just, it's just a different level of preparation while you're at the undergraduate level that we're trying to incorporate that I think some of the other schools do or have been for years. And we're, we're catching up. I used to tell folks like, you know, listen, you're, you're not, you're not better than me. You've just been doing this longer, but yeah. I'm coming for you. Right? No, that, that's a good point. Excellent point. Okay. I mean, I think now that we see, you, you see more people uh, investing on acorns and these other platforms and it's kind of become a little bit more popular, even though people might be losing their shirt, by putting money in GameStop or, <laughs> you know, what, whatever else. At least you're kind of learning some things. Because I know when I was in college, stocks was just like a rap lyric. It really wasn't something that I was actually doing. I probably thought that you probably had to have a ton of money to, to do those. So how, how do we get more Julians, Robert Smith, Jim Reynolds, John Rogers? How do we or, Melody Hobsons? How do we how do we get more of the, these folks into PE or at least 
like you said, having that good fundamental understanding of what private equity is or venture capital, you know, so that because sometimes we may be good at these things, but we don't even know that they exist until we're like 40 exactly. years old. And it's, by that time, it's too late to oh. compete with somebody that's 21. Yeah, I didn't discover private equity what I'm doing until very late in my career, much later in my career, frankly. Um, I think, I mean, that is an exceptional question and, um, and quest and something that I think we um, should all in our industry, it's incumbent upon us, the folks you mentioned for sure, um, myself, my colleagues, folks I went to business school with um, who were African-American, folks I went to Howard with, et cetera, to really um, do as much as we can to expose the next generation of students to this type of career, um, at least this type of career path, if you will. There's actually two things. One is a general um, increase in financial liter literacy across our community. Um, we should be talking about stocks and bonds and investment portfolios in churches, mm -hmm. um, wow. for instance, or community centers, right? It shouldn't be until you graduate from college that you understand what a stock or a bond is. I'm just saying, theoretically, like those concepts are not very difficult to understand once you have somebody to take, to take the time, excuse me, to explain it. So I do think that there is a cultural shift that needs to continue to happen across um, African-American population. And I think that's happening. It's, it's you know, it's unfortunately slower. I mean, we, we do a lot of stuff at Vista to help with that. But I mean, it's... Um, we just all have to do more. It's, it's one of those things like more, more, more. And then I think in terms of helping, um, you know, the future generation of, of the folks you mentioned, who, by the way, it's an exceptional class. You just talked about the, the Jim Reynolds of the world and Melody Hobson's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think we just have to try to increase the exposure to these career paths and these options sooner in undergraduate careers. And we're doing that. We just have to do more, 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 I guess is probably the point. And so the more of us that kind of get into these businesses, the more of us that, you know, focus on giving back by training, recruiting, providing opportunity, making aware, creating awareness for people, the more we do that, the more, um, you know, hopefully uh, mainstream, some of these career paths will, uh, will begin to feel. Um, or less foreign, I should say, because it has been a um, extremely rewarding career path, not, not only for me, of course, but especially for the folks that you mentioned. For Would sure. you say um, financially rewarding? <laughs> I think that I know, almost thought you were going to ask me that. I was like, man, I think he's probably going to ask me. It well, has been. It has been. I think that. Josh, it has been like, I mean, it, no, like yeah. seriously, like my, my roommate from Howard, we're roommates for three years at Howard. Okay. He, he, he went to Harvard business school and I remember being at Howard and you have friends like, Oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. And they actually became those things. Yep. You know what I mean? And then yeah. I have people say I was going to business school. I, it, I just paid it no attention. I'm like, yeah, why would you want to go to extra school? Like, You know? <laughs> so then I had these friends, they go to Harvard and you know, they go to these top business programs and then they go from like making like 70 grand, you know, to like 
coming out of business school, making like 250, 300. I'm like, I'm like, hold up, man. And then they on Wall Street, you know, like you said, and they're getting exposed to these different things. I think that a, a lot of us, just like sports, you know, kids don't know where sports agents are until way too far after that basketball dream is 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 done you know i think we like it just needs to be that exposure like hey here's what i do here's here's how i make money you can do the math on your own you know what i mean and they're like oh wow you know and i think that's that's another interesting point because <clears throat> i mean it's you know in finance it's uh <laughs> It's about money. I mean, it's just it's it's very much a meritocracy, right? It's like it's like the people who are who are smart and accurate, precise, work hard, um, tend to do very well. And we work in an industry that happens to be an ecosystem that generates a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so you can I won't say easily, but it is a very very um, plausible notion that by the time you get to be in your thirties, late thirties, you know, you're making millions of dollars a year. I don't, don't tell me that, man. I'm about to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> that's not everybody's experience. No, but, no, but that's saying I'm, to you that, no, I understand what yeah. you're saying. And, and so I was, the only point I was going to make is, and maybe that's, you know, part of the starting point point. and look, there is, I mean, other jobs like accounting and, you know, supply chain management and like there, there are some great, great career paths, right? That, that provide, um, they're very rewarding, right? And, and, and also require um, all of you, right? To deliver the best kind of, you know, performance for yourself in your career. So this is not to, to diss any other career path because I wasn't on this finance path until basically after business school. But I will say that the difference between what you could earn in a career on Wall Street or private equity or whatever um, can be exponentially more than other career paths. Yeah, I have friends that work in PE and they always say this thing called carried interest or something like that, that they like to throw on my face. And I'm like, what is that? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so. That is a very real thing. By the <laughs> <way>. <laughs> so if I want to get into PE, I'm a young guy, young girl watching this. And um, a lot of us, we, we come to college. We don't really know what we want to do. Um, yeah, here, here. Same thing. Um, but maybe I'm reading about PE. How do I get into it? Did, did you have to have special licenses? I mean, I mean, what are some things that you need to be doing in terms of maybe soft skills or what things should you have on your resume or what organization should you join to get on this path to being a rainmaker? <laughs> <laughs> Must be described Robert. Um <laughs> Let's see. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, there, there are some notable paths to, and not just private equity. I want to, whether it's banking or like other financial services, um, typically the entry point is, is through school, right? I mean, it's through undergraduate and then it's also through an MBA or business school program. And 
generally we, not just Vista, but other firms, you know, frankly look for students who have demonstrated um, that they have the ability to, to excel in their classroom work and do very well. We look for very well-rounded people, mm-hmm. um, people who have done both well in school, people who may be student athletes, people who, um, you know, have maybe they work part-time or maybe they do something in student government, but kind of just, you know, really well-rounded people. And like everything else, you know, it's, it's a, it's a curve, right? I mean, there are people at the top of their game and there are people who, you know, aren't quite, um, maximizing their potential. And so I would start by saying that regardless of the school that you go to or the major that you're in, you need to be in a situation where you are performing at your top level at all times. Um, It's very difficult. Um, I don't, I don't know many people who, if I know any who have C averages and are able to break into some of these investment firms. I just don't, it isn't a culture. Right. It's just they, they typically recruit um, high performing students. So whatever it is you're doing, do it very, very well. Crush it. Man. Of court, I'm sorry. I said, man, sounds like a true finance guy. <laughs> whatever you're doing, <laughs> crush it. All right. Now, talk, talk to me. Talk to me after you've crushed it. Then you can call me. <laughs> Well, I'm just I'm, look. I'm I'm being honest. I mean, it it does. You know, you should yeah. you should do a great job with whatever it is you're doing. And Absolutely. then I think if you major in business and finance or accounting, there's certain majors that tend to be attractive to um, you know analyst programs, right? J.P. Morgan's of the world, Goldman Sachs of the world that will come into the to the school and recruit you to join their analyst program, or maybe do an internship as an analyst over the summer. So you get your feet wet, whether it's, you know, sales and trading, investment banking, you know, private equity, that's, that's really the, the on-ramp. And then kind of from, from there, it's um, like anything else, it's more of a trajectory, you know, did that internship turn into a full-time offer into the analyst program after you graduate? And you join the analyst program after you graduate and you do really well, you get promoted to associate, or maybe you get fired. Mm. Um, if you can uh, promote to associate, do they sponsor you to go back to business school or do they not? Do you go on your own? Possibly. If you do, you graduate. Did you do well at business school? How were your grades? Were you a finance focus? Yeah, so there's there's a litany of things that typically mm-hmm. um, that has been the traditional path um, that has led people down this, this career path of, of being in the financial services industry. But I would say um, usually 10 times out of 10, uh, the industry looks for <laughs> individuals who have, you know, who've done very, very well in school. Welcome to the Go Fish Village podcast. As a Chinese proverb says, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. At Go Fish, our goal is to teach individuals just like you how to build wealth through real estate. How do... <laughs> we uh you know get get money for for black owned uh startups or what advice would you have for maybe an up and coming startup entrepreneur who who wants to get funding yeah that's um you know just historically you know and robert talks a lot about these this idea of like the banking the black banking capillary system and how African-American businesses have been 
underbanked or communities, certainly by and large. And that, I mean, everything from like barbershops to hair salons to like all kinds of African-American businesses have been under, communities have been underbanked for some time. I think what you're seeing is, you know, and unfortunately on the, on the heels of the George, George Floyd, you know, incident and, and others that have, I think, you know, have, have really shaken mainstream America in a way. Um, and then you look at the proliferation of like information, how it gets shared across social media. I think one is that we all know a lot more than we did before about information. You know, these stories and hear these things that happen. And so people tend to react more acutely than they have previously, or you have people with cell phones and you, you record things and you put it on Instagram or you, you email it around to people and people are typically shocked. So I think there's been, if I think about like JP Morgan, I think about some of the, the traditional, you know, Bank of America, I think about those institutions. Um, they are doing, based on my contacts, they're doing a much better job of engaging with, reaching out to African-American businesses and then even more specifically providing capital for black banks in communities mm -hmm. that touch us a lot more frequently than there was before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say two things. One would be go ask for money right now. Yeah. Go ask for money. I believe that this is more, I think this environment feels to me a bit more fertile in terms of African-American businesses and their ability to get better funding. We did some of this with, and we, we saw the, the disconnect between these black businesses and banks not getting all the PPP money that they were supposed to get, et cetera. PPE money, excuse me, they were supposed to be earmarked for and having to, to really kind of go in and re-engineer that process. Um, but I would say number one, continue to ask. Number two, make sure you're tight, right? I mean, no one's going to give you money just because you got a black owned business. They're going to give you money when they see that you have your accounting stuff taken care of, when they see that you understand your market very well, when they think or believe that you have good and strong financial statements, and they know that you have um, a good strategy and a game plan. Like it's also incumbent upon, as we know this, black owned businesses to again, perform in a way that wants to attract capital. Mm -hmm. Capital is attracted to entities or people or places that it can multiply. Where, where do you see the markets going now? We got a new regime in the, in the White House. You know, it's a good question. I mean, I think um, overall markets are, are frothy. You know, I think the, the Dow, the S&P and the NASDAQ um, have all hit, um, all-time highs recently. So you have to, you know, you have to be a little bit cautious about that. I mean, am I buying completely at the top and you have to really understand the fundamental um, valuations of these businesses and kind of to understand what's sort of expensive relative to historical valuations versus like where we are now in the cycle. I think, um, I think the pandemic and how we continue, how the administration continues to roll out the vaccine and get shots in arms and allow schools to reopen in mass and allow businesses to continue to operate successfully. That's going to have a lot to do with how um, the market continues to scale. 
I think the, and also the stimulus that comes along with that, right? So the idea that President Biden, um, you know, he, he wants to go big now, because just given the magnitude of what we've been dealing with in the economy because of the pandemic, I think that approach is, is thoughtful. Um, I also think, and we don't know this, what it is yet, but whatever his tax policy is for businesses that could encourage additional spending and hiring and growth is also going to make a difference. So, I mean, frankly, I'm optimistic. I mean, the, the stock market has achieved, again, some all-time highs, and we're just still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and I don't think that the recovery and the reopening of the country and the world has been fully priced into these valuations. I'm not, I'm not a stock trader by any means. I'm just giving you my layman's view, if you will. So, you know, so you can't, you can't give me any picks. No. Oh man. <laughs> I was hoping to get some, some of that 30% year over year. Oh. <laughs> um, so last question on uh, what, what advice do you have for the 18 year old Julian coming into Howard right oh. now? They want to kick it. They want to. <laughs> they want to have that fun, but then they want to get the bag after they graduate. Like you, they want to go to B school. They want to live in New York. They want to live in Chicago, L.A. They just want to, you know, they want to. They want to be great and and enjoy life. Like what? What advice do you have for that young man or woman? Yeah, I would say, man, two two big things. It's gonna it's gonna sound it's gonna sound trite, but it is true. Stay out of trouble. And there's a lot of trouble you can get into right now. And I, I truly mean, you know, because people sometimes will um, go down a path that could derail where they're supposed to be. And to get off path and then come back is a huge effort. And so don't don't do any of that kind of stuff. OK, I tell Julian, hey, Julian, like that decision you're about to make that could, you know, not lead to a great outcome. Stay away from those things. Um, the other thing I would tell my younger self is um, to try to figure out what you want to do as soon as you can. Mm. To, to, to develop a love for the financial markets and an understanding of them earlier. The one thing I hate about private equity is not discovering it sooner in my career. Wow, you must really love it. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, so that's my that's my point. So Man. if I could advise him, I'd say, you know, there's this other thing that you probably have never heard of before, but let me let me save you some years and tell you what this is now and give you an opportunity to to fully engage. Um, I would also tell my 18-year-old self to learn how to code. I would tell my 18-year-old, yeah, for sure. I would tell my 18-year-old self to develop exceptional credit as soon as you possibly can. Mm. I would tell my 18 year old self, I know you're not making any money right now, but whatever money you do have, try to save a little bit, you know? And then I would also say, you know, don't, don't lose, you know, I think one of the, um, as I think about some of the, the folks I grew up with, um, who were in a similar situation that I was, I think, you know, one of the things that I think I did really well and, and really right, if that's even a way to describe it, was I listened to my parents. I actually listened to my parents and they gave me, they've given me exceptional advice along the way. And, um, 
I guess that'd be the other thing, like continue to listen to your folks. Like, you know, you're not the man, like, you know, just stay focused, dude. There's lots you have to learn. Right. So that's, and I was six, four, two fifty five when I was 18. Whoa. I probably thought a lot of, a lot of myself at the time. <laughs> oh man. So it was probably super hard for you to listen to anybody. It might have been. I mean, man. Been. Okay. Anyways. Well, Julian Boston. Too much truth for your uh, your show tonight, Josh. But anyways, that's that's my answer. No. Well, hey, you've been a, a excellent excellent guest. Um, if if somebody wants to, I guess follow you, or um, oh, good question. You know, or or get in touch with with Mr. Bostic, the rainmaker. Private equity, venture capitalist, financier. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Not even, man. Um, the walking look, bank. I, I would tell them to, eat, I tell your your listeners or your viewers just to, you know, get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind helping to, if anybody ever wants to chat, just putting them in touch with me, that might be the easiest way to do it. Okay. Uh, I'm not really on, I mean, I'm on Instagram, but I, I don't that's what, I'm not a prolific user of uh, social media. I'm barely on Facebook. Um, I have a TikTok account, but I just watch dancing videos all the time. <laughs> I have Instagram, but I don't really, I don't really follow people. And I'm, I'm sure, no, well, I got a couple of followers, but no. So I don't have really a presence on um, from a social media perspective. Um, but if you do want to get in touch, just, I would say just to hit you up uh, at whatever your, your email address is. Okay. Well, thank you. You've, you've been a wonderful guest. I appreciate your time today. No problem at all, Josh. Thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. Good luck and uh, blessings to you. Keep doing your thing. This was a wonderful night. Really appreciate the interview. Um, I'm going to check out your other interviews as well because this is great. So I'm glad that you're doing this and really appreciate you inviting me on. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for joining the HU Movemaker podcast, where we highlight folks that have contributed to the Howard legacy at the highest levels. To hear more interviews or purchase merchandise, please visit www.humovemakers.com.